everybody. I'm Bob Main. Welcome to episode number 200 of today's Survival Show, where it's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have wherever you are. Well, here we are, 200 episodes. Wow. Um, man, I tell you what, I just want to say, first of all, as I get going here with this show, thank you very much for hanging in there with me and listening to me for 200 episodes. The listener count is at an all-time high for this show. You know, I took about six months off last year, and so many of you stuck with me. And I am just so flattered that you guys continue to tune in to learn about prepping and common sense survival. And so now, uh, with this 200th episode, I'm just going to do a regular show. It's not going to really be a bunch of pomp and circumstance. It's not about me. It's not uh, trying to toot my own horn or anything like that. This is just going to be a show like any other shows. But I just wanted to start off by telling you and saying to you, thank you very much for being such great listeners. And so many of you are supporting my show in so many different ways. A lot of you have been buying things from my Amazon store. You've been going over to the website and clicking on my recommended books store or my everyday carry store. And that's some pretty cool stuff. You do support the show with anything that you buy from Amazon as long as you head over to www.todayssurvival.com. Todayssurvival.com. Head over to the website, and if you want to do some shopping on Amazon, if you want to pick up Glenn Tate's book uh, or any of the books that he's written, the four-book series, 299 Days, you can see the recommended books page, and you can buy it from Amazon through my site, or you can go over to my Everyday Carry store, and you can check out some of the items, uh, some of the uh, knives that I use, and the flashlights that I use, and the uh, the belt cutting tool in my car, some of the portable radios that we've talked about. All those can be purchased at my Everyday Carry store. Those are Amazon links. Even if you're not interested in buying one of those products, at least if you'll enter Amazon by clicking through one of the links on my website, I'll get some credit. So thank you very much for helping me out. I appreciate you all of you have been doing that. And quite a few of you have been buying my Survival Champions Club podcast. Uh, Glenn Tate, the author of 299 Days, came back to do another interview about building a prepper team. Good stuff. And John Neusser came back to talk about self-defense training. So that's on there, too. You might recall John Neusser is an emergency room technician, and if, if some of you listen to my uh, my podcast called the Handgun World Podcast, he gave a great interview on there with me about ballistics, about uh, bullet ballistics and things like that. Well, he's also a firearms trainer, and he's got a pretty good method of training just for all-around self-defense. So he came back and he did another interview. That's also available on the Survival Champions Club. So for 25 bucks, you can get either one of those podcasts, $25 each, or both of them for 40 Just go to todayssurvival.com and uh, look over on the right-hand side where it says Survival Champions Club podcast again 25 bucks for either of those podcasts glenn tate or john newser or you can get them both for 40 dollars. proceeds help keep my show going and uh, if you like the work i do and you feel it's within your heart to do that either buy something off of amazon or pick up a couple copies of my survival champions club podcast or even just one copy all right so that does it for the announcements oh by the way my email is bob at todays 
com if you want to email me. Well, I got together with three awesome individuals. And last week, last Saturday, I went to the American Bladesmith Society knife show here in San Antonio, Texas, where I live. It was a great knife show. I went to it last year. I got some good interviews. If you've been following my show for quite some time, you probably remember the interviews that I had with some knife makers, some professional, high-quality knife makers. I got a couple of them back together this year, and I added one more person that did an interview with me last year. This is really good stuff. We talk about knife making. We talk about the difference between tactical knives and working knives, and you're going to gain a really cool insight to what really goes into the making of a good quality handcrafted knife. So I'm going to tell you the three people here that I interviewed. Daniel O'Malley is the owner of bladegallery.com. Check out that website. Uh, That'll be in the show notes also. Bladegallery.com. If you're looking for a really good survival knife, combat knife, and you really want one of the best, check out bladegallery.com. If you're looking for some good sharpening stones uh, or learning how to maintain your knives or even books and CDs, about knife making and maintaining knives and sharpening and so forth, just head on over there to bladegallery.com. You're going to see some pretty cool stuff that he's got over there. It's, It's worth spending a good five or six minutes at least, maybe even more, on his site. So Daniel O'Malley, he's got that website. He sells the knives that most of the custom knife makers out there produce. Good stuff. So Daniel's one of the guests. Eric Fritz, who was on last year. Um, I've gotten to know Eric pretty well. So, Eric, here's a shout-out to you. Thanks again for your time. Thanks for the knife. He gave me one of his knives. He did last year, and he did again this year. He gave me a little everyday carry knife with a Kydex sheath. Really, really cool stuff. His website is fritzknives.com. That's Fritz, F-R-I-T-Z, knives.com. Dot com. Check out his website as well. You're going to hear Eric. Eric's going to be talking about a variety of things. And um, he'll also be talking about some of the firearms training and stuff that he's doing too. But he starts off talking about his knives. And the third person that interviews with me is Shane Taylor. Shane Taylor also interviewed with, with me last year. And his website is Taylor Knives. He's a master bladesmith. I found out at this show there are only 121 master bladesmiths in the world. Uh, Shane's one of them. So, you know, the American Bladesmith Society has only certified 121 master bladesmiths worldwide. And uh, lots of these guys are from Montana and Wyoming and quite a few from Texas and so forth. So Shane Taylor is going to be in on that, on this discussion as well. All three of them. Good stuff. You're going to enjoy this. If you heard last year's interview, this is completely different. We, we went into some different subject matter on this one than we did last year. So here we go. Just a quick intermission or sound effect and uh, my interview with those three guys at the American Bladesmith Society show. Okay, well, I'm joined by uh, Daniel O'Malley from Blade Gallery. Daniel, thank you. Thank you. 
Uh, bladegallery.com, right? You've got it, exactly. All right, and Eric Fritz is here. Uh, Eric was on the show last year after this Blade Show. We're at the American Bladesmith uh, Show in San Antonio. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about you know your knives and stuff, and we're going to talk about uh, some firearms training that you've been doing. And Shane Taylor's here. Shane, thank oh, you. Well, thank you, Bob. If uh, people who are listening to this remember last year, about a year ago, uh, Shane was also on the show, and we were talking about a lot of cool stuff. So, uh, Daniel, let's start with Blade Gallery. Uh, talk about talk about Blade Gallery, your website, and what you do. Yeah, I feel pretty lucky. We started up back in 96. Um, I was in my apprenticeship under a mastersmith named Bob Kramer at that point. And uh, just in talking to a few different makers, we came up with the idea of what would it be like if we built a site that had a bunch of different makers work together. And so the idea was, let's see how many people we could bring, we could bring together and see how many visitors we could find and see if we could reach a more international audience. And it was one of those things where the timing was just perfect. We started out pretty small, and over the years, we've got over about over 350 makers that we regularly work with, over 500 makers that uh, occasionally work with us. Um, we've built into some into a separate division that just aims at chefs' knives with a really strong focus on handmade chefs' knives. And, and two of your makers are here. Exactly. Both Eric and Shane. Matter of fact, Shane was one of our first makers who joined. Yes, I've, um, I've been with Daniel since '96. So, yeah. so you've been selling you've been selling your knives through Blade Gallery since '96. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And it's it's one of those projects where you know you think it, you'll get it done in a couple of hours a week, and it'll be this small side gig, and pretty soon it takes over your life, and you've got several employees taking part and. It's exciting. This is your primary business? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. give out the website. It's uh, www.bladegallery.com. And I've been to it. I, I've seen it. And, and folks, if you're, if you're looking for a good knife, go to bladegallery.com and uh, get some Shane Taylor knives, some Eric Fritz knives, and a bunch of others. Yeah, it's exciting. Great handmade work. Fantastic focus on, on knives as true art. Well, that's, that's the amazing thing here about the knives at this show. This is artwork. Yeah. And one of the neat things with Daniel's site is, for your listeners, Bob, he's also transitioned into the tactical market this past year. Um, Strider, Emerson, Benchmates, yeah, yeah, Gavin and Grand Hawk, a, a wide range of people. When we first started, a lot of our work was aimed at makers where their primary goal is a piece of artwork that happens to have an edge on it. And, um, and I find that fantastically inspiring. Um, I myself am a chef's knife maker, and so from that I get a real understanding and real and enjoyment of knives that are going to be used daily. And uh, more and more, I began to also see this this enthusiasm for you know having a hunting knife that you're not sharpening every single animal that you're you're taking down, let alone several sharpening in between while you're working on one animal. You know, having one that'll last through several uh, several hunts is pretty spectacular. Um, yeah, it ha is. Having a tactical knife that's going to be used out in the field, that's going to save lives because it's performing the way it's supposed to. And, and a lot of people who listen to this show are going to be pretty much into the tactical knives, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, and there is a phenomenal difference between a tactical knife that's a machine-made piece that's made by the thousands and a tactical knife that is handmade. It's not, not just because of the level of fit and finish, which is important but because of the way it performs, that it's a different beast in the way it works. And speaking of tactical knives, Eric, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about, we've got some armed forces with 
some knives. Talk yes, about um, through my firearms training business that me and Shane run together, it's called EDC Training. Um, our mentor, a guy named Pat Goodale, who owns PFT, Practical Firearms Training, who's an ex-Marine Corps officer, put us in touch with a Marine Corps unit that has actively deployed to the sandbox every year for the last eight years. These guys are deployed for four to six months at a time. And the upshot of it, we got talking about it, and Pat liked our knives, and we're doing what's called elite knife makers and elite warriors. So some of the top knife makers in the world are donating a custom-made knife to go to this unit. Um, That's awesome. Some of the guys we've got involved are Dr. Jim Batson, the president of the American Bladesmith Society, um, Shane Taylor. Um, I haven't decided if I'm going to do it because I wanted it to be the top knife makers in the world. Shane's knives, the knife he's building, you would normally get 1500 to 2500 yeah. for a Batwing fighter. These are enlisted Marines who couldn't afford this. No, they can't. Um, I've got Bill Burke, um, Jason Knight, um, Master Bladesmith Steve Dunn. These are guys that we strive to, or people strive to get on their waiting list, let alone own a knife. Um, Daniel has some guys that we're going to be working through Daniel with to do this project. Um, we're just excited to get the hands, the knives in the hands of the guys who could use them as a bit of a thank you as well. You know, an enlisted Marine cannot afford a, oh, what's a good, a Rick, Rick Eaton has decided to donate a knife to this. Rick Eaton's knives are five to, I think he sold knives over $20,000. No kidding? He's, he sold, it's knives. Actually he sold knives for $70,000. Yeah. For one knife. For one knife? Yes. So the people involved in wow. this are from all walks. It's not just bladesmiths. We're also having um, stock removal makers. Um, Daniel said he's got some guys in mind that we're going to be contacting to do this. And we're basically excited about this project. And these knives are being donated to our warriors. They're being donated. Um, next year at the ABS show in San Antonio, we'll be doing a presentation to that unit. Um, and it's a special forces unit. Yes, it's Marine Corps Special Forces, Force Reconnaissance Detachment. Um, oh, man, that's awesome. I so, think one of the things that's really exciting about this project is that these are a group of folks who are going to be using these knives hard. This isn't a group of folks that are going to be sitting these on a shelf. And I think it's a neat opportunity both for the makers and the people using them to really have those knives tested, to have those knives put through grueling experiences and to get to see what what can happen. And I'm sure a Marine Special Forces unit will put them through a, a, a good test. Yeah, I was when I was in the military, I was in the Navy, I was an intelligence specialist assigned to a unit deployed with the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit, and we always joked around if a piece of equipment was Marine-proof. Um, talk to Daniel Shaw if you have any questions about what that is, Bob. Uh, I will. Talk to Daniel, he, he can explain what Marine-proof is. And on that, I'll email him. I did um, give you and Ben a knife today. Yeah. I hope Tactical Tom from the Gun Dudes is listening because I tried contacting Tactical Tom. He would not reply to my emails, so I also gave a knife to Jason Christensen of Concealment Solutions. Awesome. So Tactical Tom has missed out. Yes, he has. Come on, Tommy. Why don't you return Eric's email? Come on. <laughs> so, so Jason got a knife. Yes. I got a knife. Ben Branham got a knife. Yes. My friend Mark got a knife. And Tom uh, didn't get a knife. And Tom didn't. Can I have Tom's knife? Well, we may be able to work around it. 
<laughs> I get Tom's knife. All right. Because my son, my son needs a knife. Oh, okay. Well, since, since Tom is asleep at the wheel, how about if we just give my son Tom's we knife? We may do that. <laughs> All right. Good. Good. Shane Taylor, talk a little bit about some of the, um, the combat knives. Yeah, well, when I make a, a combat knife, I go about it in a completely different manner than I would, uh, say, a hunter or one of my folders. Because a uh, combat knife, you're going to want to have uh, differentially heat-treated, which means it's going to be very hard at the edge and then progressively softer as it goes towards the spine. Why? Well, you want maximum edge-holding ability on the edge so it stays sharp and uh, is hard enough to cut and, okay. and cut, cutting ability. But as it steel gets softer, it also gets uh, more flexible. So if you have the entire knife completely hardened and not drawn back properly in a tempering process, then it, it's very brittle. So under uh, extreme conditions like these guys are going to be operating in, it will break. If it's if it isn't, and so that's really that's the difference problem. between a tactical knife and just a regular. Yeah. Knife well, that not to, there there are hunting knives that are that are done with uh, um, differentially heat treating as well, um, because any knife you want that in there, but um, balance with, 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 strength. Yeah, and with with a, with a combat knife, I mean these knives are going to be put to the maximum limit, and you don't know what they're going to be used for. They're going to be maybe used to pry doors open or you know pry cans open so you want this thing to act as a knife and a crowbar basically i think you really hit it on the head you know a lot of times as as a hunter you can say well you might want a knife that's going to be used to break through the breastbone and but that same knife probably isn't going to skin the animal as well so you might need to have two knives with you and a lot of people do that for someone who's out in the field, who's already got how many pounds of gear? Yeah, they got they got tons of stuff. Yeah, asking <clears throat> them to carry multiple tools that have a similar use just isn't practical. And so, create at that point, you're having to create a knife that is going to be doing tasks that, in any other situation, we'd say that's abuse. And yet, this is a knife that has to take it. Their life may depend on that knife performing. Um, that's one thing I like to keep in mind when I sell a knife is this person's life depends on my knife performing as advertised. And that's a big responsibility as a knife maker. It, I, I really take that to heart, that that individual's life depends on my knife performing as advertised. Well, you should. You should. I mean, that's and that's good. <clears throat> Shane, I want to ask you a question. There, there's some people that probably are listening to this that that didn't listen to quite far back as the episode that we did last year. Uh-huh. Tell everybody, what do you have to do to become a master bladesmith? Okay, first you have to be a, a, an apprentice for three years with the ABS. And then you're eligible for your journeyman smith. To become a journeyman smith, you have to make a test blade of, uh, that has 10 inches long, a 10 inch long blade that uh, will chop through two 2 by 4s cut a one-inch one free-hanging rope with one cut and still shave hair and then bend it to 90 degrees without breaking. That's the first part of the test. The second part of the test is you have to submit five knives to a panel of judges. And uh, you can do that either uh, at the blade show or, or at this show. 
and they check the knives for fit and finish, if everything's okay, you become a journeyman smith. Then it's a two-year wait before you're eligible for your master smith. So once you're a journeyman, then it's a two-year wait. Yeah, it's a two-year wait before you're eligible for master smith. Then basically it's the same test, only your, your test blade has to be uh, over 300 layers of Damascus steel. And, uh, and your things. presentation knives have to work. And, yep, and the presentation knives have to be all basically perfect. And uh, some of the, some of those are to specifications too. Like a, you have to make a quillion dagger with a ten inch blade, uh, fluted wire wrapped handle. Yeah. Nice. Now I learned today there's only 121 master bladesmiths. Yes. Is that right? In the world. In the world. Yeah. Yeah. We've got master bladesmiths, I believe, in Australia, England, South Africa, China, South, South Africa. You're, so you're in a small group. Oh yeah. You're in a really yeah, yeah. small group. Yeah. Yes, very small group. Yeah. 121 in the it, world. It it is one of the toughest tests there is. When you're when you're sitting outside that room with those guys, uh, judging your knives in there, I equated it to uh, having a guillotine in that room, and I was waiting to go in and have my head chopped off <laughs> with, with a I, master I bladesmith have, knife. Right? I, 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 I would I wouldn't have been more nervous. <laughs> when, when did you pass that test? Uh, in 2000. Okay, so you've been well. You've been a master for a long time. Then. Yeah, yeah, thirteen years now. Awesome. Uh, give out your uh, website real quick. Uh, TaylorKnives.com. TaylorKnives.com. And uh, I, I like you know, like you mentioned earlier. I do quite a bit on uh, on, on Blade, Blade Gallery. Gallery. Com. And in fact, if you want to see uh, some of my older work, um, that's the place to go because Daniel has. That's the great thing about Blade Gallery. He has all of the knives that I've ever sold through Blade Gallery up. One of the things that we want to do with that, when because many of the knives that we're dealing with are artwork, understanding where, you know, if you've got a Shane Taylor folder up today, it's helpful for a collector to understand where does that fit into Shane Taylor's work? Is that his most complex piece he's ever done? Or is this a simpler piece? Or where does it sit? That's on your website? Exactly. And where it, where it sits in his work? Exactly. And so there will be this range of a whole bunch of pieces that he's done over the past that are also representative of his work and give an idea to people of what his what his skill sets are, where his strengths are, and so forth. It's it's a neat archive. That's Daniel at bladegallery.com. What what are some of your more popular selling knives? Definitely, as Eric was saying, the tactical work has become a really exciting part of the market. Uh, we've emphasized that more, but also I think. Because there, we are we're a country that's that's in defend in a, a phase of defending itself right now. Um, that's that's made people realize how important it is to have the right tools. Um, some of the pieces uh, by Daniel Winkler, uh, the Winkler two knives are um, uh, incredibly popular right now because they're such workhorses. Could you explain what Winkler II is? A lot of the listeners won't know Daniel Winkler is a master bladesmith. I don't even know what Winkler II is. Yeah, Daniel Winkler is a master bladesmith who um, is well known for sort of modern primitive pieces. He's the man who made the knives for Last of the Mohicans, for several other movies. He's got his chops. And this early sort of primitive Native American, early, early American style knife has been something that's really set him apart. Um, just absolutely stunning work and uh, about maybe four or five years ago he got involved in this project of building knives for soldiers that were going to be used um, 
And um, it's been really inspirational to talk to some of these soldiers about their experiences with these pe- with these pieces. Um, he makes hawks for uh, for the same purpose. And one of the things that's really exciting to hear is when a soldier tells you, "Hey, you know, I was in a dangerous situation. I was breaking down a door with this hawk. It broke through, and it saved lives. If I had gone in there with a gun, the person there has a good likelihood of shooting back. If I go in there with a hawk, they say, "Whoa, I don't know what this is about, but I'm not fighting it." Yeah, exactly. And to have something like that where it it decelerates a potentially dangerous situation is really exciting. And I mean, so he's got government contracts. The pieces are going very directly through the military. We sell probably a third of the pieces that we're selling in the Winkler Two line. We're selling that are going going over uh, overseas with soldiers, and it's just it's really exciting to see to see a, a maker who's really devoting themselves towards that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's uh, pieces like that. Pieces like Eric Fritz's uh, everyday carry pieces. Where They're awesome. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's one of those knives where you feel good using it, you know. And uh, that's one. It's a small, compact size, and so it's one that's easy to carry with you. And That's so, what I got today. I think I'm going to make it a neck knife. Yep. Works real, real well for that. I think a lot of folks have, have used them that way. And just, it's a tool that, you know, you don't... You don't think about having it until you need it, and then you've got it there. <laughs> Eric, how much is your everyday carry? Um, they're $175, and I don't do direct sales on that knife. That knife is sold through Blade Gallery. Through a Blade Gallery? Yes. Okay. Yeah. One um, of the neat things with Blade Gallery, and I know Daniel's a little too modest to bring it up, is if you're looking for something and he doesn't have it, they're willing to contact the maker. They act as a mediator. So if you want a Shane Taylor piece... Call Daniel, and Daniel will work with the maker. Even some of the production knives out there, Benchmade's one you mm-hmm. deal with. Oh, you um, do? You deal with the, the mass production we, knives, yeah, too? We deal with Benchmade's. We deal with Emerson's. We deal with um, Strider's, Chris Reeves. We deal with uh, Spyderco. We deal with a lot of the knives, too, that are going to be daily carry and then up through into the pieces that might also be daily carry but are going to be handmade. So Blade Gallery is a one-stop shop. It's, it really is. What we're, what we're trying to do at this point is to really, we've tried to expand to embrace, we're certainly not going to have a gas station level knife, but to embrace knives that are reliable, that are going to do their job, and that people know they're going to have performers. So when I stop at Love's tr- Truck Stop, I'm not going to see one. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, in, that's good. In your EDC store, you have the Benchmade Griptilian. Yep. That's the low end of what Daniel did. Yeah, that's the low end, yeah. That's probably the low end of the knives. Yeah. In my EDC store, I'm going to put a picture of your EDC knife okay. and a link back to Blade Gallery. Okay, yeah, Blade Gallery just received a new shipment. I don't know if they're sold yet. We haven't talked about it. But I have a standing order from Daniel, so they trickle in throughout the year. And that little that little Kydex sheath is... Uh, who makes that? Uh, a guy named Phil Rosine. He does my sheaths, Shane's. Yeah. Um, Rick Dunkerley, I know, has sheaths made by him. Cool. So All right. We have quite a few makers that Phil does sheaths for. Good. So those of you listening, uh, check out bladegallery.com. And uh, 
get a Shane Taylor and an Eric Fritz knife, at least one of each. <laughs> get at least one of each. You got to own one of each. I don't have a Shane Taylor knife, but maybe someday I will. Um, I have it, one on my table, Bob. I know. Yeah. What's the price tag on it? Uh, that one is about two thousand dollars. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big knife, though. And it is, has, is uh, it one of those I can pull out and go? That's not a knife. That's oh, a knife. Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I'll even demonstrate that at my table. Yeah, I you will. <laughs> uh, I got to come by and I got to see that. Um, okay, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, okay. Shane Taylor and Eric Fritz up in Montana are doing some uh, firearms training, and you guys are actually going outside of Montana too. You yes. Know. So, um, talk a little bit about your firearms training. I heard it's going pretty well. Um, we started last year. Uh, where this came from is I've been training for years. I've gone to Pat Goodale's practical firearms training classes, John Farms, Corbon Training Center. And there's a lot of call locally for people wanting to get training, but they didn't want to pay the big money. Um, Two years ago or three years ago, Shane went through Pat Goodale's practical firearms, and then this year he went through another level of Pat's training, and we got together and formed EDC Training LLC. Um, our prices are a little lower, kind of like yours and Ben's. They're not like going to gun site. Um, average round count through one of our classes is two to 300 rounds, and we take you from having never touched a gun to shooting on the move and shooting moving targets. Um, we do a four-hour lecture on... Um, safety, on legal rights, um, what to do before and after a shooting, you know, how to set your mental trigger. You know, we've actually turned students away. I had one individual as a juvenile probation officer, and she was having some problems with some clients and came to me about getting training, and I said, well, what would make you kill somebody? And she kind of looked at me funny. I said, you're talking about using deadly force. There's something that would make you kill another human being. And she decided she couldn't. So I've actually turned students away. She decided she didn't even want to own a firearm after that. Really? Yeah, because a lot of people don't think things through before they go down this road. Um, I was talking, true. one you know. of the guys at the show here with me behind me is um, Dr. Dan Peterson. He's a clinical psychologist. Yeah. He's a professor at Washburn University in Kansas, and we were talking about post-shooting. You know, a lot of people don't understand that even if they've been caring for a while, that if they do have to use their weapon to defend themselves, the psychological effect years down the road. You know, you shoot somebody, Bob, and you and your grandkids walk into a store 10 years later, and they say, there's Bob the killer, Bob the gunfighter, and you have to explain to your five-year-old grandson. So you have to relive that moment. Yeah, and, you know, that's something people don't think about. And that's one thing we try to put through our classes. And we'll start off on the static line, um, firing one shot, doing precision drills, then we, by the end of the class we're shooting in, on the move and basically getting people comfortable carrying a loaded firearm and learning how to deploy it in a hostile environment and learning that when you are attacked, uh, to quote Pat Goodell, it'll be BYFS. Your opponent is going to be bigger, younger, faster, and stronger than you. And you need to learn to respond to that. As, and I'm starting to realize that as I get older. Um, I was a high school football player. I wrestled on the U.S. Navy team. I played college football, and all of a sudden, I'm getting old. Two neck surgeries, a shoulder, a knee surgery, and a developing food blister. I can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a 25-year-old mixed martial artist. No. And so I try to get that through to my students. We essentially are doing a, I don't know if you call it a feeder program, but a prep program for um, Pat Goodell's practical firearms training. 
Um, in conjunction, we work with a company called Tax Strike Target Systems. They give us a discount on their targets, and um, Rob Tackett at Tax Strike is also an instructor. So your your company is called what? EDC Training. EDC Training, and what's the website? Uh, FritzKnives.com. Okay, if they go to Fritz, F-R-I-T-Z, yes. Knives. Dot com, they can find your training. Yes. And your training in, I know in Montana and South Dakota, right? And North Dakota. And North Dakota. And our background's a little on it. Um, I was an intelligence specialist in the U.S. Navy. I've worked as a reserve deputy. i am also uh, worked as the tactical medic on the regional SWAT team. I was one of the first three licensed tactical medics in the state of Montana. Um, Shane, as a private citizen, has carried a gun since you were a kid. Yeah. Uh, he grew up on a cattle ranch. And then also around his shop. A lot of people don't realize knife makers, like at Shane's level, he has several thousand dollars worth of ivory and gold in his shop every day. You know, so the protection factor there and having young kids, we take this very serious along with the training. Hope you get your AR-15 handy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, so this is something that we've developed through the years. We put over 200 students through last year. Um, Awesome. We're, the business is expanding, and we're really enjoying it. Um, next year, we'll be doing classes on um, tactical medicine um, for the concealed carry, you know, what to do if you or a loved one's wounded. After the Colorado shooting, that really brought to light for me the stories of people watching their loved one bleed out in front of them. They could see the ambulance lights outside, but law enforcement wouldn't clear the scene. So how do you treat a gunshot wound on a loved one in an environment because they were not allowed to carry in that theater. Right. But I could carry a tourniquet, quick clot, an Israeli bandage. You know, so I, that's one thing I'm pushing students now. You know, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of people don't think about that. You know, all they think about is firearms training, firearms training. They don't think about, like you said, mm-hmm. you know, what if one of your loved ones gets shot, EMTs can't get there, you've got to be able to at least stop the bleeding so they don't bleed out and die before. And, and a lot of people kind of... They poo-poo it. They go, oh, why do you need to have that kind of training? You know, like you said, I think there's some people in Colorado, in Aurora, Colorado, that could have used that. Yes. And um, one of the trainings we did a week, two weeks ago, the high school. Oh, yeah. We were contacted to do uh, um, preparation, awareness, and avoidance training for the local high school and how to respond to an active shooter situation. This is a non-firearms class. And all we did was we taught the students to be prepared be aware and to avoid. If you see somebody in the hallway at your school and you don't recognize them, don't confront them. Go to the principal. That's his job. Notify somebody in authority that I don't know this person. And it could be your local telephone man. He don't mind being asked for his ID. That's why the principal, why the faculty's there. And also that you are taught, you should be taught. If a scenario develops, run, hide, barricade. And if the barricade is breached, attack. I'm sorry, I don't care who you are. If you've got 10, 17-year-old high school football players jump on you, you're going down. And that is Department of Homeland Security training. That is put out that the last thing you do is attack. But we need to teach people to respond. Don't be a sheep. Don't lay there. Don't be a good victim. We also need to enable faculty to respond with a gun. I firmly believe in that. One of the really neat things we did during that talk was uh, Eric had one of the kids with a rolled-up newspaper stand 21 feet away, seven paces, and attack. One the 21-foot the the tooler drill. drill. Yep, yep. And, uh, yeah. Explain that. A lot of people don't understand that. Yeah, he, he had one of his training uh, 
pistols on on a kid that had been trained, right? He had no. The first kid had not been. Oh, trained. yeah. I carry one of those tourniquets. I got one. But uh, anyway, he wasn't even able to clear the holster by the time that kid got to him with the magazine. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that someone someone who's in reasonable shape, twenty one feet, they don't have to be an athlete. Somebody who's in reasonably decent physical condition, they can close twenty one feet faster than most people can even get their gun out of the holster. Exactly. Well, and we kind of set it up. The kid we had with the knife was all state football, all state basketball. He is the top athlete in the high school. And then we had that scenario, and then we also took my son, who's been through ungodly amounts of training. I've drugged him since he was seven years old to different trainings, and he was able to draw the the blue gun and deliver three shots before the kid got to him. And the purpose of it was to show that training can offset lack of knowledge. But your son's been through a lot of training. He's been through, and that's why we did the two different kids. Yeah. To show that getting a little training can save your life. You know, there's a false sense of security. You know, people throw a gun in their holster that have no training, and they go, oh, I'm fine. You know, and the old saying, don't bring a knife to a gunfight, baloney. Uh, I'll bring a knife if I'm 21 feet away from somebody, and if somebody's untrained with a gun, I'm going to be able to get the better of them, I think. Exactly, and you could see the lights go off on all those kids, especially the boys, the football team boys, in an active shooter situation. They saw they could take a shooter down by rushing him. Yeah. And, and you could see that on their faces. It dawned on them how easy that would be. You know, maybe one of them would get hit, but they would get the shooter down. Yeah, this is cool. Eric just emptied his pockets. Um, what kind of flashlights you got? Surefire L2. Okay. This is my EDC when I can't carry a gun. I carry a soft tee tourniquet. I've got one of those tourniquets. An Israeli bandage, a bundle of quick cloth, a bad blood knives folder, and a Surefire light. Normally, there'd be a Springfield XD45 compact and a Springfield XDS. I'm at a knife show. I brought my wife along. I could carry my gun in Texas. I'm licensed. Yeah, you're in Texas. But I know me. I am going to stop and have myself a Guinness before I go back to the motel. Uh, okay. So I choose not to carry. Okay. And I have friends in Texas here that I assume <laughs> are carrying for my benefit. Uh, yeah, I think I got that covered. Anyway, so... Um, this is what I consider my minimum carry. This, I carry this every day at work. I work for a telephone company. I'm in and out of houses. I deal with the public. And this is my normal carry. Adding to it the gun. Two guns. Two guns. One is gun. Two is one. And that's Three right. Don't just crack. settle for one gun. Now, you're two. One of them is the XD45. I carry an XD45 compact. And then your backs up, backup's an XDS. XDS, yes. Okay. Um, and the reason for that, I know we train that you should access your weapon with your weak hand. I have a developing food blister. My flexibility is bad. Can I borrow that from you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not the food blister. I want to borrow the terminology. I stole that from Pat Goodale. Oh, okay. I'm, I've lost some of my food blister, but... So uh, I carry one on my left side inside the waistband. I carry right side outside the waistband most times, dressed like you with an untucked camp shirt. And nobody can tell. It, but I have learned that I can't access my strong side gun. I've had my left shoulder rebuilt. Yeah. Um, I had, I'm split wide open. But I can't access on my left side. So I have access to two. Does Montana have open carry? Yes, we do. Um, but I'm a... I'm not an open carry fan. Yeah. Um, but even if, if someone saw your gun, it's yes. not illegal in yeah, Montana. No, it is not. Hopefully that's going to pass here in Texas pretty soon. A lot of people don't realize that Texas does not have open carry. Mm -hmm. There is talk right now in the legislative session, right now, that's going on, 
there's talk that before the legislative session is over, Texas will have open carry. And I'm hoping that through all this we'll end up with nationwide reciprocity. Man, not with the guy in the White House. I don't think so. They keep talking about wanting to compromise. I have a firm belief I'm willing to compromise. I will agree to a 60-round magazine limit as long as they agree to nationwide reciprocity. 60-round? Well, that's the surefire. I figured I'd give them the (laughs) 100-round. You know what? I don't think you'll take that compromise, Eric. Well, then why should we compromise? Well, that's true. That's my belief. You know, uh, my belief is I would love to see a national reciprocity, but I wouldn't trade their ridiculous gun uh, control for it right now. No, not at this current moment. No, no, no. I'm not going to be shrinking my magazines (coughs) down to 10 rounds or, in New York's case, 7 rounds. Forget that. No, No. that's not a good trade because right now my, my Texas permit is good in like 30... Three or thirty-four states, and my Utah permit picks up another few. And that time, I have a Montana permit and a Utah. Yeah, permit. and I never, I never travel to the other America where they are restrictive anyway. You know, we, you know, you know, John Edwards was kind of right. We do have two Americas. We have the America who believes in freedom and allows us to carry our guns, and then we have New York. Yep, is the other America. Yes, and one thing I. Living in Montana, we don't realize a lot of this. I talked to Daniel and one of Daniel's employees, quite regular, in Washington State. Daniel's storefronts in Seattle, Kirkland. I was going to ask you, you're in you're in Kirkland, right? Okay. Exactly. You know, so their view of what they see every day, as opposed to me, is completely different. You know, I know Daniel owns firearms, his employees own firearms, and hearing the different stories from the different cities, always, you know, listening to your podcast it, in Montana. If me and Shane go downtown Miles City to have lunch and strap a pistol on, nobody cares. They ain't going to say nothing. They really, most people really don't care in Texas unless you go to Austin or you go like to the middle of Houston. You know, I mean, Austin's full of a bunch of hippies. Sorry to my Austin listeners. I know that if you listen, you're not a hippie, but Austin has a lot of hippies. Let's face it, they do. Um, Don't they, Mark? They do. The limp wrist one. Oh, 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 that's bad. Hey, Shane, do you... <laughs> oh, that's bad. Shane, do you allow your employees to carry at work? I do, yeah. I God think, bless you. I think that uh, it's an important thing to have the ability to, to be protected. I called you Shane. I meant to say Daniel. That's okay. I got it. <laughs> that was dumb. Anyway, go ahead. You allow your employees... I have ever been mistaken before. No, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> well, people can't see this. They can only yeah. hear it. But so, but you allow your employees to carry a, a blade gallery. It, it's important to, to be able to be protected and feel safe in the environment that you're at. Yeah. Well, and that's good. You know... Um, that's awesome, uh, Shane. You're you're training with Eric. Uh huh. Okay. So you guys are a tag team like me and Ben. Yeah. Well, Eric Eric uh, does most of the talking and and, and Shane set, is set the things up. one. I'll be out front teaching, and he works with the individual. That's that's. I I kind of fine tune what what Eric's teaching because you know when you're up front and and uh, got everybody on the line, you can't pick out certain things that somebody's doing because that would be unfair to the rest of the You know, Ben and I work so that way a lot. Ben and I Ben and I work that way. He's he's basically doing a lot of the teaching. I'm on the line right. working fine points. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we, and we get a lot of women through yeah, through, through we our classes. Probably probably uh, more than half. I would of, say. Of, yes. Getting any teachers had, yet? 
We have, that's one thing I didn't say is we do this year, um, anybody that comes to one of our classes that is a teacher or faculty member um, gets a free class. Yep, same here. Yeah. Uh, we, all the way through June 30th, they can come through. In fact, we got four of them signed up. That's yeah, we've got three out of the Forsyth High School already that want to take it. Um, we're working on Miles City. We're going to be doing classes over there this year. So anybody in eastern Montana or anybody that wants to come to eastern Montana, all you got to do is prove you're a teacher, faculty member, and you have a free class. I've got a, a superintendent of a private school coming in March to uh, one of our classes. Wow. That's so. fantastic to have people getting involved where they can make a difference, right? I mean, those are people who have the opportunity to bring pressure to make the changes that we need. Yeah, well, I, you know what? I'm, I'm going to say this, and I don't care if it's not popular. You know, I agree with Wayne LaPierre that that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good, a good guy, guy with, with a gun. gun. And, and the best first responders at any school, any building, anywhere are the people on the scene carrying a gun. They're the best first responders. It, it always takes a gun to stop that bad guy with a gun. The only difference is the time interval in between. Well, so if you have somebody, even the good guy gets there with a the gun. So if you got a guy there already, he's going to kill less people. You can't stop him from kill, killing, but you can sure stop him from killing more people. Now, if the gun control laws pass, all the criminals are going to start turning their guns in, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the criminals are going to shrink to a 10-round magazine, right? Uh-huh. One of the things with the that- class we did at the high school that um, kind of drove the point home with me was I brought a political science teacher who'd been teaching for 27 years up to the front. And I said, when you became a teacher, did they tell you you'd be asked to lay your life down for your students? And to a man, none of the teachers aren't asked this. But us as parents, I have children in school, Shane has children in school. So do I. We are relying on these adults to take care of our children. And why are they being limited? If they choose, I'm not saying arm the teachers, I'm saying if the teacher chooses to be armed. Exactly. And some of them are making the choice. Yes, and I think that is a great thing for them to do. Yeah. But I am a firm believer in training. I don't think just give them a handgun and say, here you go. No. If you want to be armed, you get training and prove that you can do it and receive periodic um, recertification. Yeah. Just like law enforcement. Law enforcement has recertification. And I'm sorry, I've had law enforcement come through my classes. I worked in law enforcement. There are law enforcement officers who are not qualified. There, there's some law enforcement officers, and no, no offense, but there are some that can't shoot. That is very correct. They just don't because you know why? Because only once a year they show up and they qualify with their hands Once or twice a year. Once or twice a year and they never practice with it ever again. Yeah. And, you know, I had a lady on Facebook who is an anti-gun lady and she's friends with somebody else who's a friend of mine. That uh, was my wife's aunt, Maureen. Well, that's one. There's another one. There's one named Maureen and there's another one named Kathy. And this lady, Kathy, puts a post up there when I said I was a firearms trainer. And she says, well, what kind of a trainer are you? Unless you're training law enforcement, you're not much of a trainer. And what she doesn't understand is that I've had cops come through my class. And I've had cops come through my class and say to me, when they got, when I got down with my class, they say, I got better training in the day I spent with you than I ever got from my police department. Um, you know, you could you could ask Ben Branham. Ben will tell you that he's received training in the private sector that he never got in the military. And the group that you work with, um, the Suarez group, 
is a phenomenal training group. Suarez International. You look at what Gabe has done through the courses, the course development, along with different platforms. You know, Gabe was one of the first ones to advocate the AK-47. Yep. And learning to use that in a defensive environment is phenomenal. And so I think a lot of it is where you seek your training and look at your instructor's background. Are they seeking training? Yeah. Last year, I made the point of going to a John Farnham class. This year, me and Shane are looking at different options of where we can go this year. Mike Seeklander is going to be in Montana. Excellent. So go go to that class. That you won't regret that. See, and I respect you guys because I believe, as I've said many times, you can tell who's a good trainer by what kind of classes he takes. Right. Right, and that's something that we're uh, going to do is keep continuing to uh, train. I think if you're going to be a firearms... That's one of the good things about about, uh, Eric's class, or our class, I should say. Your class. uh, um, He's had so much training, and he takes little bits and pieces, all the good stuff from all of the training that he's had and incorporates that in. Well, we've got one of Daniel's employees... um, can I say his name? Yeah. Drew, um, him and his wife, his wife, who is not a gun person, is actually somewhat anti-gun. Not She's swaying on it, from what I understand. Yeah, I mean, I don't think she carries, but I think yeah. she, she's They're actually supporting to, Drew carrying. They're coming out to Montana to take a class from us this year. So we're kind of excited about that, you know. So it, I think the melding of our backgrounds and seeking further training is benefiting our students. You know, I listen to you. You go to classes all over. You've been through MAG-40. Twice. You're a Suarez adjunct instructor now, you know, so this is, we're looking at, we want to go to MAG-40 someday. I'm taking two classes this year. I'm taking point shooting progressions uh, through Suarez International. I'd love to take Roger With Roger Phillips, yep. He'll be here in San Antonio April 6th and 7th. Uh, Don't procrastinate. There's only about a half a dozen spots left in that class as of this recording. Uh, and then I'm going to take another class in the fall. I haven't figured out what it's going to be yet. And we're hoping to have you come up to help with a class in Montana. I'd be happy to do it. I'll come up. Montana or South Dakota? Uh, I'm thinking the South Dakota one if we do it at the Corbon facility. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. You know, the thing is, like I said, if you're, if you're selecting a firearms trainer, find somebody who also takes training. You know, I'm not going to name any names, but there are trainers out there that probably haven't been to a class in 15 years. And they're teaching. And, that, you know, it, it makes you kind of wonder, well, they're teaching stuff that we learned 15 years ago, but there might be better today, you know? Yeah. There might be better techniques today. And there is. And that's one thing I've learned from talking to other instructors is techniques change over time. You know, you Sort of knife-making techniques, yeah. right? Well, you look yeah, at the advent of the Glock handgun. We had to change our manipulation and reloading habits from the way we used to operate bread as in 1911s. Mm-hmm. You know, so look for people that try to integrate new philosophy and technology into their training, but they have to be able to articulate why you do a certain movement. You know, like an overhand grip um, when you rack the slide. Why do you do that versus a slingshot? You know, and ha- make sure they can articulate why, not just because I told you to. Well, Eric, you just brought up something. In the last episode, I interviewed a guy named John Newser. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to borrow this from you, John, because you said I could. He says, train like a three-year-old. What is a three-year-old? What, what's the number one question a three-year-old asks? Why? 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 He said, you should train like a three-year-old. Ask the instructor, why? 
Why do you do this? Why are you showing it to me? What's the purpose of it? If the instructor can't explain why, if they can't have a good, cogent, coherent reason as to why, then look at a different technique. Well, then use my philosophy: take the best, leave the rest. Yep. You know, yeah. throw that out. It, it, it take the yeah. best of what he says, but you know. So, all firearms instructors who are listening to this, be able to explain why. Why do you teach that technique and what's the purpose? It doesn't mean that everybody's always going to agree with you. Some people don't agree with me when I teach the overhand tug method to perform a, uh, a reload, to chamber a new round. That's okay. I teach why I teach that. Or I tell people why I teach that, you know, because it's the same for every gun. I don't care what gun you're running. It's That works with every single pistol. One of the things that I like um, as far as dumbing down training um, for malfunction clearance. We've all been taught tap rack, bang, tap rack ready. Um, one of the techniques I learned was called the unload reload. You do the same thing. If you've got a malfunction, instead of tap rack ready, you do the same thing for a reload for malfunction clearance. Seat the mag, rack the slide, click the trigger. So you unload the gun, pull the mag out, reload the gun, rack the slide. Problem solved. That way you're teaching the same technique to everybody, and that's just one example of how we can bring down the terminology and the steps. Because under stress, you're not going to remember nine different steps. No, you're not. Um, back to knives for a minute. I know there are people who listen that are kind of into survival and prepping and stuff. Um, Shane, what's, talk about some good knives for that. Uh, that somebody would use as a survival knife. As far as the survival knife, well, I, I would definitely recommend a custom knife, getting with the custom knife maker and having a custom knife made. Yeah. Why? Well, simply because you, and make sure that it's a reputable uh, guy that you're going to be uh, having make this knife. And uh, simply because you know what the heat treat is on that knife, he's going to tell you everything about what this knife can do, what it can't do, and... So that's what I would recommend. That's a good point. Um, Daniel, on bladegallery.com, what, what are some knives that are selling pretty well that people are using as a survival knife? Well, I think, um, I think uh, you know, again, I'd look at some of, the, um, some of the better production houses who are basically hand-making in a production environment. I'd look at folks like Strider. I'd look at folks like uh, Nemesis Knives. I'd look at folks like Spartan Knives. Um, I'd also look at those makers who are really gearing their work toward this knife is going to be used and it's going to be used heavily. Again, I think the Winkler 2 line is a great example of that. Um, I think a lot of the ABS folks are good examples of that. Um, they've understood this, this issue Shane was bringing up earlier of a soft back jaw or a softer spine through various number of methods to create a knife that is going to take abuse a little bit more so. Um, I look at some of the Chris Reeve knives. Again, a knife that's maybe one of the better production knives, but a handmade production piece. And so you can really, there's some really great pieces in the upper end of production, as well as the not as expensive customs that are going to perform at an incredible level. I don't think you can go wrong with any of the knife makers here at this show. Oh, yeah, no. 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 One thing when you're getting a custom knife is you can get what you want. You can get the steel you want, you can get the heat tree you want, you can get the guard material, the handle material that you want. Um, your knife sitting there, Bob, that you got from me last year, that was the handle material you picked out. Yep. I so did. you had a hand in designing the knife. Hey, man, I designed the knife. How about that? You know, so you get what you want. 
you're not picking up a knife and 10 years down the road you're saying, gee, I wish it had this handle material yep. because you got what you wanted. Oak. It's an oak handle. Stabilized oak burl. Yep. 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 What's the steel on that one? That one is 5160. Mm-hmm. So that's a steel that's going to take a bit of abuse. It's you call this a shoot knife, knife, don't you? Yeah, it's a forged shoot knife. Oh. And that's the steel I would use for a, a combat knife. Why? Or, or, or a survival knife. Well, basically, it, it's a spring steel. Most most people are riding around in their car on that on that steel. It's in their. Oh yeah, car that's the leaf springs in your that's car. That's the leaf leaf springs in your car. So I didn't and know also, that. And also, it's a it's a very uh, even beginner makers. That's what I start them on is with uh, fifty one sixty because it's so forgiving. It's got a pretty wide uh, uh, heat range for quenching the knife hardening it. And uh, so it's, it's a little harder to screw up than some other steels. I didn't realize that's what's in our automobiles. Yeah. yeah. It's a steel that I think really takes impact well, yes, too. Yes, it does, yeah. You know, I mean, I think there are certain knives where we're going to, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I make chef's knives, and I work a lot with chef's knives. And a lot of us at home work with chef's knives. But, you know, we learn, you know, you don't do certain things with them. Um, 5160 would be a choice of a knife that you might chop through some wood with it, you know. Um this is a knife that is going to take that impact well. Good choice. Yeah, you could even make axes or, or hatchets. Or, or Illegal for me to carry in Texas, but I can use it. You can put it in your bug out bag. I can put it in my bug out bag, yep. Um, how would you suggest I store it in my bug out bag? Not in the sheath, right? I would get a pouch, a zippered pouch. Um, here's another plug. Bladegallery.com sells knife pouches. Yep. That don't hold moisture. I'm going to get one of your pouches. And so you can store the knife in that. Kydex sheaths are fine. Leather, the tanning process has salts and acids and different things that will attack the steel. Yeah. And I think the way to see a sheath for the most part is not as a long-term storage device. But it's really designed as, I'm moving this around. Right, you're transporting it. Exactly. And I think leather is a great choice for that, but certainly that, that tannic acid that you're using in making leather tanned is going to po- cause a problem for nitrogen storage in the long that. term. That's true. Yeah. All right, guys, thanks. Thank um, you. One more time, we're going to do it just for the listener's benefit. Bladegallery.com. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Fritzknives.com, yes. F-R-I-T-Z, knives.com. And Taylor Knives. Yep. Dot com. And one more time, tell people where they can find your training. At FritzKnives.com. And um, it's called the tra- EDC Training. We're working on revamping the website. There will be a page on Fritz Knives concerning the firearms training, as well as we're going to link it to um, yep. Taylor Knives. So you can go to either one, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Um, I do my own website, so. It takes me. So do I. <laughs> My webmaster's real slow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't pay him enough. Yeah. And, so he, and so he takes his time. Gentlemen, thanks. I appreciate well, thank it. You, thank, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Wow, is that cool stuff or what? The Knives for Warriors. I thought that was awesome. I thought that was really cool. And I really liked Eric's comments about carrying some tactical medicine stuff with you. Tourniquets and different uh, bandages and things that you can carry along with you to help patch people up. You know, um, the comment he made about the folks in the movie theater in Colorado, the movie movie theater shooting that we had here last year, the Batman movie theater shooting where that... 
Oh, that scumbag goes in there and starts shooting people while they're watching a movie. You know, if you're in a situation like that, I yeah, I would definitely say that knowing some tactical medicine to be able to administer first aid on the spot is is highly important. So that's another good survival skill, and I'm glad that Eric brought that up. See, I try to give you a practical show, folks. This is a no tin foil hat kind of prepper and survival show. I try to keep this rooted in common sense so that you can get something from it. I want you to walk away, or when you're done listening to, to every episode that I do, I want you to say, I learned something. I picked up one idea, one idea that's going to help me be a better prepper, one idea that's going to help me make my life a little bit better right now, and even if the stink hits the fan, it's going to help me out. That's the goal of every episode, and also, you're going to get a whole lot more than that even. Hopefully, you'll get a couple of ideas and numerous ideas from all the Survival Champions Club podcasts that I make available to you as well. So, Many, many thanks to Eric Fritz, Shane Taylor, and Daniel O'Malley, some phenomenal knife guys, and just some good, all-around, salt-of-the-earth good people. These guys are just terrific. And I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. So as I close, I just want to say once again, thank you for sticking with me for 200 episodes. I got a lot more planned in the future. Appreciate your time. And uh, that's it. I'm Bob Main. Thanks for listening to another episode of today's Survival Show. It's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have wherever you are and present it to you in a practical and useful manner. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next week.